Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Aura Itkin, who is a music professor and pianist in her own right. And in this interview, she talks to me about growing up in Soviet Russia, pursuing music, and how certain cultural headwinds that have been occurring over the last 10, 8, 5 years very much remind her of the culture of her origin. This is a fascinating conversation with a lot of hope in it. So without further ado, here is Aura Itkin. See, was it physics or metaphysics? <laughs> <laughs> Go figure, right? It's a, a little bit of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> and we can skip a weather talk, right? <laughs> um, yeah, we can just dive right in. You can just start singing uh, or... or Tippy tapping on the piano. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I'm gonna guess you're classically trained. I'm classic, classically trained by by my uh, jazz uh, jazz saxophone player father, oh. and I was trying to run away from jazz all my life, and now I'm coming back to jazz huh. because not playing jazz it's like living in some sort of closet of unresolved fear so i have to get into that closet and pull it out so i'm horrible at it but it's fun it's fun to be uh, a fool (laughs) a child back again and mess up and make mistakes it's very liberating and so, so you grew up in where? Where did you grow up then? I grew up in Moscow, Russia. Okay. You can hear, right? It's obvious. Yeah, Even I though just, some people think I'm from Argentina, which <laughs> I take as a compliment, I guess, because I would love to visit Argentina one day. Hmm. And so, I didn't know that there was jazz clubs in Moscow. Where it did? was very rich underground life. I, sort of counterculture, and I was seeping in it from early age. I remember my dad. My dad actually used to be professor of radio engineering in college. Okay. And at age 30-something, he realized that jazz is his calling, but it took him years to realize that he went to radio engineering because he was trying to tune on to jazz waves, which were obviously blocked. They, they tried to block it. He was trying to figure out how to find these jazz waves from the West, right? From Empire of Evil. <laughs> so, and that made him falsely think he loves radio engineering. But then he realized it was the jazz. So he went and pursued it from the beginning. Um, hmm. He was self-taught, played by ear, and he was one of the very first jazz musicians, actually, who started playing in a 
jazz orchestra officially recognized. But I have very vivid memories of following him to these underground cafes filled with smoke and drinks and people with this spark in their eyes, Hmm. kind of that obsessive desire to absorb this sound and kind of melt together and just so very vivid memories how old how old would you be in these memories like three four yeah yeah kind of always being around adults yeah and it was so intriguing because i didn't have a faintest idea what they were talking about but they were like grown-up talks kind of spicy language mildly put right (laughs) all the bad words and that's why i love bad words i have some very strange affection for (laughs) spicy jargons in all different languages and i call it spicy because i think it's one of the spices of the language otherwise Mm. language is bland yeah so and and too much spice uh yeah uh, kills the taste buds but just a sprinkle here and there yeah and then I went to classical music because that was the only formal training available. Nobody Mm -hmm. would formally train jazz. And once they figured out I have absolute pitch, so I was kind of like, okay, I guess I'm doomed to do. My dad said, okay, I have to do something about it. So, and then I, I hated it. (laughs) I hated piano. I hated music. I hated everything. And then my dad would allow me to quit, (laughs) and I quit. And it took me several weeks to realize that something huge missing out of my life. And secretly, I came back to playing Hmm. on my own terms. So Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. that's how it started. It started from hate, and it came to love. Yeah. (laughs) You said that going back to jazz is like uh, going into a closet filled with Fear. What is so scary, or what, what's associating this jazz to? What, what do you mean by fear? Is there something in the jazz, or something in you? Well, jazz is like you embarking on some journey where you don't know where you will end up. You, you have no final destination, yeah. And you just enjoy the road, and you go, you explore, you get lost. And no idea, there's no conflict, there's no resolution. Yeah. It's just a journey. And I think it's for for the sake of it. And um, you enjoy every moment as you do it. And there's no right, there's no wrong. It's kind of different realm, but very structured too, because you cannot just sit and play. You have to, I call it planned spontaneity. That's how yes. I teach. Yeah. And it's kind of, you have, I guess you have sort of objective reality, I would call it, which is time and, and rhythm, which you cannot escape. You have to be in it, with it, okay. and then you can do your thing. But that's why I call it planned spontaneity. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. You make me think about my uh, conversations, uh, such as what we're having right now. I, people ask me, well, what, what are we going to talk about? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. We're going to go on a journey together. So Yeah, you don't know, and yet you know. It's kind of yeah. both. 
Yeah. yeah, and actually, speaking of knowing, what actually gave me that impulse to contact you in the first place, it's your absolutely fascinating conversation with uh, one of your guests, uh, Dr. Joshua Mitchell, mm. who talks about many things that I hopefully will be touching today, but... Um, it was fascinating because literally what I've been thinking about whole life and that's what I'm teaching, that's what I'm doing, mm -hmm. is that personal knowledge, how we get it, how we know what we know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's, I've been thinking about, you know, cancel culture and the kind of the, the suppression of ideas that's kind of running rampant, especially in certain um, institutions and maybe within mm -hmm. even we could say probably particular generations given over to canceling one another uh, crafting what is proper improper to say the flip side of that cancel culture or that oppressive kind of wave that's going on right now is that mm -hmm. that causes people to go underground just like your father they they start to figure out how to sneak signals back and forth across the world and and it opens up a, another yeah. realm though i'm not for totalitarian authoritarianism at the same time that really concentrates the artists it concentrates which the is creators. wonderful but that's how majority of the art was born i think it's a in a way it's a horrible thing but it's a wonderful thing because it kind of provokes our resistance kind of our mm. immune it triggers our immune system yeah and i wrote to you what i wanted to talk about how we can boost our immune system so because by nature we we are cre we are creative species right we have to survive we're survivalists so it triggers our survivalist instinct which is totally um doped by media, by like yes. painkillers. I call it Advil. I teach in my seminars. I have a whole topic. I call it Advil, painkillers. Like everything is great, but we, we, we just suppress mm -hmm. something creative in us, right? Yes. So I think it's a good thing that's happened now because it will be something new awakening as opposed to wokeness. There will be the counter wokeness, which will be, uh, I think, wonderful regenerating process for society i'm mm -hmm. very optimistic i'm pessimistic and optimistic again yeah, both i i think we need to hold both of those because it's not simply good enough to be anti-woke to be against it to be a critic of it though it is very important to criticize it and i hope that we can talk about uh, how it's reminding you of uh absolutely where you're where you're from from russia but there's, the there's another thing, yeah, of, of the problem giving something with yeah. Just criticizing it, I almost feel I was very angry at what's going on. And I was thinking, oh, it's a deja vu. Am I back in eighth grade where I had to memorize Mark's manifesto and have a grade, good grade, check mark, like, hello, am I back in eighth grade here in the United States? <laughs> <laughs> Can we grow up? Hmm. So, but now it seems that okay, things are on the surface, like teenagers, right? They, they all have pimples, right? Pimples, hormones, and stuff. Okay, get over yourself. Start making something. Start doing something. So we have to get over that wokeness and anti-wokeness, because anti-wokeness can become dogmatic as well. Yeah. 
it's another box we're jumping from wokeness to anti-wokeness and that's how we're going to jump from one box to another so there have to be some third entity kind of that opens some creative channel that i guess transcend right that yes i'm talking now in almost hegelian terms yeah, right say, like yeah. Yeah, (laughs) but yeah, because otherwise the pendulum will be going back and forth, back and forth. And pendulum, it's big part of my uh, interdisciplinary seminars that I teach. Okay, just to to actually look at what pendulum does historically, culturally, mentally, etc. So Mm -hmm. it's important to recognize. So, how many things are you teaching then? And what things. topics do you cover? Well, Just all these different I, things. Piano, I, philosophy, aesthetics, it sounds like. I would say how many things my students teach me. Hmm. Because I consider myself a student of my students. Because it's that's why I love what I do. Uh, I teach piano. Um, I teach in college, in music department, in one of the liberal arts colleges in mm-hmm. Midwest. You, you're allowed to uh, be interdisciplinary in your and I teach courses. interdisciplinary seminars. Uh, I had wonderful seminars uh, with professor of mathematics with a colleagues, which I encouraged in our college, and I think it's a wonderful thing. And I teach my, my I thought my own seminar matrix. I called it matrix of connectivity. Okay. And and the gaps. So uh, and actually my students who would attend the seminars and still attending, they would tell me, or you should do something about it. I think we wish our parents will get something like that, or we wish we learned something like that in middle school or in elementary school. So, and that's kind of steered my thinking, okay, what can I do about it? I don't know what, like beyond college, beyond academic... uh, you said that the title of it is The Matrix and the Gaps? Matrix of Connectivity of and connectivity. How We Bridge the Gaps. Okay. And Different m- gaps. Just anything, like how do you uh, mix salt and pepper? thinking between um, mostly how we think and gaps between okay. we started talking about knowledge, how we know what we know. Mm-hmm. Is it the information? Uh, is it enough to get certain con- concepts from textbooks does it mean we know the subject and here here i'm coming back to the book very important book that uh joshua mitchell mentioned personal knowledge by michael polani who talks about we know more than we can say so it's connecting our experience with the concept. Otherwise, it's just the concept. It's just like connecting head and the body together, the, the whole body of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, yeah, that's make us more whole human being. So the idea of wholeness. Okay. Is this strictly, I know it's not strictly conceptual what you're talking about, but are there like exercises or practices? How does one... Uh, strengthen the muscle of integration. Okay. One example. You have a group of students, right? And students, interdisciplinary students come from computer science, engineering, uh, philosophy, arts, language, 
okay, and basic thing is human condition, right? That's that's basically it's all about human condition. How we as a children, and I know I think you've worked with little kids. So I call it unforgetting. Unforgetting. I don't know if even if in English this word exists. Could is you, there a word? Is there a Russian word? Yeah, is there a Russian variant no. to that? Oh, okay. It's just like I came up with the word. Why not? It sounds kind of platonic or what Socrates spoke about that we were, we don't really learn things. We just remember things yeah. in a way. Let's get out of metaphysics okay. Okay. <laughs> for a moment. Yeah. But kids are, are physical creatures, right? They don't know about Plato. They don't know about Aristotle. They don't know about Nietzsche. They don't know about Kant and Hegel. How we, how we engage with the world first when we are little kids sensory, sen- by senses, right? Mm-hmm. So how we sense the world, then later it becomes how we sense life, developing sense of light. It, it starts from our senses. Then we become more conceptual. And the problem is, the more conceptual we become, the more we forget about our senses. And the more we become disconnected from our sense of what real is. Reality. So I can talk with you for hours about music. I can talk with my students about music for hours. It means nothing unless they touch instrument themselves with their fingers. The reality is it's this touch that my fingers touch the keys. Yeah. And that's how my body connects with instrument. And then all the metaphysics comes later. Yeah, yeah. So same with science, how scientific ideas cooking. And here we come to the process of cooking, because everything is cooking. (laughs) Creativity is a cooking process. So many, many things I can talk for hours, but I don't want to be having Ora Itkin monologue. Oh, no, that's uh, this is all (laughs) you. We're jazzing. Every once in a while, I'll do like a bass riff while you take a break and then hit the horn again. (laughs) So when did you move to uh, the Americas then? Uh, I came to America in 1998, at the end of 1998. And before that, I lived in Israel for many years. Okay. When did you leave Russia then? I left Russia in 1991. Okay. And you went to uh, Israel then? I went to Israel. It's not that I had specific... I'm Russian Jew. That's my heritage. Um, And I didn't have any specific desire to go to Israel. I had different desire to get out of Russia, to get out of certain predictability of life and Hmm. just go into unknown. Hmm. So I didn't... I did, I, and since after uh, the after Gorbachev became our I don't know president and everything became more open, there was a chance to get out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I got out, but Israel was the only place to go. So okay. I went there. 
Yeah. You, you mentioned a certain predictability of life. Are you speaking about just growing up in something familiar or is that something about the promise or the pursuit or just the effect of communism is that everything becomes predictable? It, it promises like this utopia that's very, you know, from each according to their needs or from each from ability to needs and uh, it regulates the society, but then it makes it flat, very predictable, and then everybody has to be predictable in order for it to work. Is that what you're talking about or just like on, on different levels? Um, I think majority of people from Russia grew up pretty cynical, mm -hmm. very suspicious of whole regime and Communist Party. Nobody really would buy into it. Nobody would believe it. So it was this kind of fun cynicism that, okay, we don't care what's going up there, what they tell us mm, about okay. the utopia. We create our own matrix. And I'm talking about underground culture. Yeah. But then it was more about my own potential. It was less political, but more uh, seeing what I can do with myself, about myself, just throwing myself into some unknown. In, again, throwing myself into unknown without expectations. Mm. Mm. It was, again, it's a sense of adventure. It's terrifying, but it's exciting at the same time. Hmm. So. And then what was Israel like for you? Was that fun or to reach your potential? Uh, it was many things. It is many things. It's a place. Uh, it's part of me, just like hmm. Russia is part of me. Yeah. Um, it's funny because... Uh, I can tell you a funny example how I felt in Israel in the beginning. And Israel can be very intolerant, just like Russia can be. In Russia, I remember in sixth grade or seventh grade, uh, I would come into the classroom and I would see on the board huge letters written, stinky Jew, get out of here. Okay. So, okay. And then I came home crying and my dad would say, okay, get over yourself. You're there to to learn math and and Russian and, and uh, literature and it's a school, okay? Forget what they wrote, keep going. So it's kind of okay, you cannot wallow with your trauma. Okay, you are there to study. Okay, they wrote it, bad for them. <laughs> hmm. Then I came to Israel uh, and because I didn't know Hebrew there, I would hear somebody commented on me, oh, these stinky Russians, why did they came here? So I found myself in that peculiar position. Here I am Jewish. I'm coming to Israel just to find myself being mocked as Russian and why I came here. So it's another intolerance. Yeah. So you can find it anywhere. Yeah. So now in the United States, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's same everywhere. And I'm always thinking how we can get over it. Yeah. Was there a uh, call to you? from America to throw yourself into the unknown again? Why did you pick up and move from Israel to the United, United uh, States? We moved here for my husband's uh, research, postdoctoral research. Oh, okay. So we came here for one year, and then it's postdoc, 
uh, a so postdoc postdoctoral position. Then it was another year, and I couldn't stand it here. Also, it was hard to adapt. Uh, after spicy, again, I constantly use the word spicy Mediterranean, which Israel, Middle East, right? I, it seemed to be, every, we ended up in suburbs of Chicago where everything was flat. Yes. Uh, no coffee shops, no nightlife, no vibe. Like everything is bland and flavorless. And the only mm. thing that I could go to was my own, only entertain, entertainment was cup food. So, so nothing else. So, but uh, little by little, yeah, we stayed here. So we didn't technically emigrated to United States. Oh. We came for my husband research i started performing and i was hired to teach and kids and that's how it went yeah, so yeah, we, we're yeah. here i'm here so when did um things uh hit your radar uh, the current uh, climate right now within colleges but beyond colleges it started in the colleges this uh kind of cancel culture or wokeness or whatever you want to call it when did it when did you start becoming aware of it uh, many years ago, many years ago, when my daughter went to college, actually, and uh, I have to say that I was very lucky to send both of my children to Classical Academy, Nova Classical Academy School, which I highly praise. It's a charter school where they would have to learn Latin and classics and Plato and Aristotle, and read Ovid, and read Shakespeare, mm -hmm. and learn principle of logic, and rhetoric, and so I'm forever grateful to that school, but then my daughter went and became freshman in um, one of the liberal arts colleges, and she started talking about them reading Marx, and I thought, okay, nothing wrong with reading Marx, hmm. right? We have to read, we have to know, right? We cannot accept or deny, at least read it. And I became suspicious of what's going on. And then she started complaining about certain tendencies in her college. And um, somehow, somehow, I think my kids are, well, I cannot tell 100%. I think I gave them pretty strong immune system. Okay, read it, learn it, know it, but don't let it guide your life. Okay, yeah. So, again, we have to know about certain dogmas not to fall into them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've so, uh, navigated through those dogmas, but you became aware that those dogmas were starting to promulgate. Yeah, but before that, and so I always, um, I always was, um, I kind of sensed it coming, but I couldn't see tangible proof. It's there. It was kind of in the air. So, uh, in general, um, because I kind of lived in certain fanatical environments in city of Jerusalem where I would practice piano and some heavily like Orthodox Jews. Uh, I guess I cannot stand orthodoxies altogether. Fanaticism and orthodoxies, they would 
threatened me to put on fire my apartment because I'm practicing. <laughs> and um, oh, no. it's that, again, that fanaticism that yeah. uh, it's my deep resistance to anything like that. So uh, I always would kind of unintentionally spread books around house and drag my kids to concerts, ex- give them some exposure to cinema, to museums, take them to to Europe. I think travel is very important. And um, I think so too. Yeah. Um, actually, one of my favorite philosophers, Miguel de Unamuno, Spanish philosopher, he has this amazing quote that I'm 100%, 200% agree with, that we can cure fascism by reading and we can cure racism by traveling. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess giving my, my own children and my exposure own personal therapy. exposure to yeah. different cultures, yes. that's the best cure. Yeah. I mean, we just stopped talking in those terms. Yeah. But now we're back talking about something. <laughs> so, that's why I'm saying we have to get over it. This orthodoxy. Uh, okay. So has it, um, since your first uh, kind of being coming aware of it, it's grown and grown. Is that fair to say? Do you think it's Can you repeat it's- it again, your question? Since first seeing your daughter and your son being exposed to it in college, this uh, orthodoxy has mm-hmm. expanded and entrenched itself and become very apparent. Uh, mm-hmm. What are your? Uh, how does it remind you of, uh, I guess, Russia, or to what extent do you think that that's the direction that we're heading, or do you think it's just a phase? Or I think. Okay, let me put it this way. And I would even tell my friends five, six years ago that I have strong flashbacks, sort of sense of deja vu with what it was in Russia. But as I said earlier, we were very cynical and suspicious about that. Because of the history, maybe much European history of to go, all together, gulags. Yeah. So, uh, Second World War. So I think that in many ways, what what is stunning to me, it's in many ways naivety. Naivet. Yeah. Like naivety. a lot of people are naive about certain historical prices, very high tolls, historic toll that other countries, nations had to pay mm-hmm. for certain fanaticism and dogmatism and orthodoxies or following utopias. It's a heavy toll, uh, which tangibly, as a fact, can calculate it in millions and millions and millions of lives. Yeah. So... And I wish there will be more serious exposure to that kind of history. Again, it comes back to education. Yes. Uh, Your uh, phone wants to tell us about education. (laughs) 
Oh my God! That's my- whenever you say history, hey Siri, it pops up. Like how how did your yeah. father how did your father thread that how did your family avoid the gulags or avoid suppression? Well, gulags, I know they came down I, very hard on Jews. Uh, the gulags the were much earlier. I was born in seventies, so there were no gulags. Yeah, no gulags. Uh, but um, Jews for yeah, there is a long history of anti-Semitism in Russia. But coming back, I'm kind of making this connection, coming back to cancel culture, uh, I'm, I'm thinking lately about it and what's happened with, even it's touching music now when we talk about certain dead white male composers and writers and philosophers. Uh, it's laughable because as a Jew, I would say 90% of all great composers of all great writers, philosophers, artists, they had some sort of degree of anti-Semitism about mm. them. Mm. Does it mean I should deprive myself of the great music they composed, of the great books they, they wrote? So I had to make choice. And my family, like, you cut through that anti-Semitism. Okay, that's one part, but there's something bigger than that. It's something beautiful they created. So I forgive them the anti-Semitism. I don't care if Mozart was anti-Semite. But if he wrote beautiful music, I choose that part of Mozart. Okay, yeah. So that's my thinking, and that's what I try to ingrain into my kids. And I think that's something that might help this country. Because I have students at, the, hmm. uh, at college who are African-American, who are from India, who are from Vietnam, who come to me and if they want to play Mozart or Beethoven, I cannot tell them, oh, they're white, dead males, you're not allowed to play them, you have to play something of your tribe. Hmm. No, they're not coming to me for that. They want something different. Just like if my white student wants to play jazz and blues, should I tell them, no, stick to your white tribe? You know, the, so I just, I think we have to just overcome this level of thinking and think mm. in more universal terms, kind of yeah. back to universal kind of amazing bank of ideas, of beautiful things as human, one human tribe that created, that's what's called civilization, and that's what's called culture, cultivation, what we cultivated our, of ourselves as apes. If we can go to Kubrick's opening sequence, I traditionally yeah. always start my seminars with that sequence. We're apes, right? <laughs> so what can we do about this? And that's what civilization gave us. Are we going to ruin it, cut the roots of the tree that we're sitting on? How the tree will grow? Mm, so mm. it's kind of we have to go back to the roots, water the roots, and then kind of let the new leaves grow. So. Have you seen students come into you that were very aflame with uh, justice and wanting to pursue justice and uh, caught up in the fervor of that orthodoxy? And if you have seen those students, how have you have you seen uh, an ability to change their mind to make them more open, to make them less orthodox? Fanatical? I. I'm not talking on that level. 
we're talking about human condition. Yeah. So when students come to me, I'll give you a simple example. Here is the piano. You have white keys. You can call piano a white supremacist instrument, right? Because we have more white keys than black keys, right? But if you keep only white keys, piano will not play. If you take all white keys out and leave only black keys, piano will not play. We need both, right? Mm. So same, we, we start and end conversation about white, black, yellow, purple, uh, with one phrase that is forever kind of ingrained in my mind. I met a surgeon here in the United States who was um, working in military base in Iraq, and he was operating patients in a surgery room in a, in a military field, and they were Muslims and Kurds and American soldiers. And I asked him how it felt to make, to make an open surgery on American versus Iraqi. And he would tell me when, when you open human body, it bleeds same color. Yeah. So uh, it's a kind of absolutely simple, obvious truth about all of us. Doesn't matter who is black, who is white. We bleed same color, red, yeah. right? So yeah. that's how we start our conversation. It's a different level. Yeah, it is a different level. Uh, there's different yeah, parameters we, to it. Yeah. It's a level of what connects, uh, what, is, uh, what is the shared humanity that we carry. It's history. We all have bloody history. Speaking <laughs> of Joshua Mitchell, right? Stained history, right? Mm -hmm. We have, you have your slavery. I have my Holocaust. Should we compete? Who is more painful? Okay, we all have traumas. Let's acknowledge it. Let's talk about it. And let's see how we can build, move through it and build some. So I'm trying to open different perceptual channels. Mm -hmm. I guess open mind, which uh, Dr. Harold Bloom wrote a fascinating book, The Closing of American Mind. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. maybe it's time to, as educators, start opening minds, our minds, our own minds, and then kind of excite our students and people around kids and parents. It's a work. Kind of get excited about hmm. your fellow human being, mm -hmm. regardless of colors of skin and races. And yeah, yeah. Appreciate it as as a true diversity, right? That life will be bland and spiceless without us being so different and diverse. Yeah. So yeah. can we just celebrate it? Yeah. There's so, uh without taking away anything from the pursuit of justice or the actual concern for the well-being of, of other human beings and, and wanting the world to be more fair, it seems that those principles have lost connectivity with the potential the potentiality of human experience. I'm, I'm just going to riff for just a moment. There's this perspective of life where we have to fix the world, we have to save the world and usher in a new utopia and dismantle the systems that are thinking on a sociological level or thinking of being on the right side of history, thinking in superhuman terms, and it's lost connection to the 
potentiality of the human spirit, which is unlocked in culture in music, in this other form of pursuing justice, which is pursuing perhaps the beautiful and the good and the true in a way. Well, the thing is, at the root is a beautiful idea, right? But again, we talked in the beginning about idea, all ideas, will ideas like in the air, right? Our mind lives with ideas. But once we build start fetishizing, right, this idea, we start blinding ourselves. We're creating more and more blind spots and disconnecting from reality. Yeah. And reality, no, we, the world is there. Who we are to fix it? Are we missionaries mm. of fixing the world? Mm. And how we fix the, the world is there. We live in our time, right? What can we do to be co-creators of this world? Okay. So rather than fixing uh, something that's broken, you... It seems like there's more of a lo- living idea there where I'm co-creating the world rather than uh, pursuing... A, this this end goal, the the talos or the the, the motivation, the, ad, the principle. The other side of the rainbow, as James Lindsay puts it, right? <laughs> <laughs> the world is given to us, and mm. there is a place under the sun. It's there. Appreciate what you have. It's given to us in terms of we have this rich, rich cultural traditions, multiple like. World is polyphonic, right? In music, there is a term polyphony, right? Multi-voicedness. Voice, uh, world is polyphonic. Yes. Open your tentacles. Tentacles, right? Your ears, your eyes, your senses. That's why I started with children, right? Yeah. Children are absorbing, right? And taking in. Take in what we already have. Don't deny it. Don't cut root of the tree, the tree will die. Hmm. So this country, America, if we cut its trees, and trees are, again, it's, it's a muddy history, like it's a dirt, right? Hmm. But hmm. it's a history. We cannot erase it, right? We cannot erase it, and we cannot replace it. But we can learn from it. And we can appreciate the good things that they were done. We can learn from bad things. And mm-hmm. again, become more invent, reinvent, reinventors. Inventors, mm-hmm. reinventors, again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, so I think it's time for innovation. In what? In what way? Do you have any clues? Thinking. Okay. Education. It all starts with education, which is work. Rethink whole education. The education systems seem to have been captured by uh, these fanatic, more or less fanatic ideologues or more or less justice-centered uh, Yes, people. and that's why I'm thinking. I still don't know how I will do it. And maybe your listeners will give some feedback. I'm thinking of maybe starting platform which will bring largely disconnected areas on one side i see it as a collaborative process parents in total disconnect f- 
from teachers and teachers, I mean, on different levels from elementary school, mm-hmm. middle school, high school, college, academia, uh, which is totally like some other real. Yeah. But and I think it's false bringing students together, students, parents, academics and educators into the conversation table to kind of reduce this disconnect. I talked about bridging the gaps, right? So it's a huge gap and huge gap between these infectious ideas, right? That take over, right? And actually real world, real world. I think COVID does not help because (laughs) we became more disconnected from each other and from Mm -hmm. real world. And more disconnected even from our own creative potentials and abilities to self-actualize. And maybe all these crazy, horrible events that happened through 2020, they all a result of it. We don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. what's happened, happened. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, hopefully so, it doesn't happen again, uh, but who knows at this point. Yeah, but I will be curious to hear what your listeners, if they have any com- commentaries yeah. or feedback. I, I'm well, thinking of actually starting, starting this platform with some of my former students mm-hmm. who wants to be a part of it. So, so in order for there to be a coming together, there has to be like a theme or, or something to do. So what is the principles of education? What are the things that need to be focused on? Like what is the root, according to you, of what is the beginning of this innovation or this renovation of education? Uh, education have to give a person tools of living in real world, not in imaginary world. It should provoke imagination <laughs> that will help us to live in real world. Instead of suppressing real world and living in imaginary world of utopian ideas. It's a different <laughs> process. <laughs> I think us educators should rethink our own passions, uh, passions in terms of ask ourselves, I'm asking myself, what am I passionate about? Because if I'm not passionate with something real, how can I inspire my students to be real? Mm-hmm. So, but it's exposure, it's certain level of vulnerabilities personal vulnerability as a teacher I have to take and I'm willing to take that and I'm doing it. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. being real with my students, not being a professor, well, yes, but being a human being, speaking mm-hmm. back, we have to reclaim our humanness. Is there a word, humanness? Humanity? Humanity, yes. 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 <laughs> and how can uh, how can music possibly help with that? Well, how have you how have you watched your students being exposed to music uh, awaken up to this humanness? It's exposure to beauty. We don't talk about beauty. We talk about horrible things, ugly things, but uh, hmm. 
again, it's a mm. beauty. It's co-creating, creating something like being mm-hmm. able to play a beautiful melody or being able to jam together. And I guess hmm. I always say there will be a beautiful utopia if uh, politicians will be musicians because musicians, <laughs> uh, if you play a duet, right? Or if you play in a jazz band or in in rock ensemble or in a orchestra, it doesn't matter about styles or what, whatever, you learn how to listen to each other. Mm-hmm. You learn to compromise for the common good, right? Here yeah. I'm using yeah. the words, not in moral sense, but also in moral sense, how you bring your expertise of me playing piano and you playing violin or you playing saxophone. Mm-hmm. And we are here in this time and place, right? On the stage and we find a way to to make it true together and co-create something beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how can we work in teams and co-create? Creative yeah. team, creative teams, not political parties, but creative teams. So Yeah, I don't know to what extent we can get our uh, politicians to act like uh, trained musicians rather than rock stars. Uh, but, we cannot. We cannot. But, but we can at least influence the polity, the, the public, towards... Uh, being like that, the, let's just say the blue states, the red states, the red areas, the blue areas, this gridlock, this us versus them, this, uh, you know, white supremacists on one end and then Antif- Antifa on the other, uh, you know, wanting to burn down everything. Uh, Absolutely. There has to be an overarching, not necessarily a melody, but at least a concert hall or a concert house. Uh, called our nation. There has to be a conception of our nation where we can conceive that we're in this together. Um, Absolutely. And it's a work of, on a local level, on level of parents and children, parents and teachers. Okay. In our real surroundings, reaching out to each other. So I'm trying to do it, but we have to, again, to learn how to be vulnerable, vulnerable and again, how to be not red or blue, Republican or left or right or whatever, but get ourselves ourselves out of this one-dimensional pendulum mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, start talking on different levels and engaging, talk with people, their language. So when I hear red state, it doesn't tell me anything. And I appreciate in a way that I'm a foreigner because I don't have this stigmas in my mind. I don't know what it is. It means nothing to me when you say <laughs> red state, blue states. Let me talk to a person. Let me see what they are about. Can we jam together? Can yeah. we cook together? Can we share a meal? Can we Can we again, create something. So well, There has to be a parameter on people who want to ruin the music, right? Um, what, where's the line and how do you draw that of people who want to come in and just create cacophony, uh, people who want to actively ruin the jam session by injecting uh, their power games into it? I'm working on a story right now that where that happens, so that's why I ask. 
I'm coming back to two words. You develop immune system. The virus. Okay, let's talk about okay. COVID. Okay, safety, right? Uh, good. Uh, it's good analogy because you can put thousand masks all over yourself. You can do it in real world. There always will be cacophony. World is chaotic, right? It's chaos, right? So there always will be people like that. So let's say the viruses are there in the air. Uh, You keep doing your thing. Mm -hmm. You keep doing your thing. You you, you will survive. But Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you refuse to engage with them. If you, so here is a good analogy. If you're trying to create harmony, uh, harmony always defeats cacophony. Why? Because we are wired for harmony. Oh. As humans, we're wired to yeah. for balance. Otherwise, we go insane. Yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. We go. We go into depression. We go into suicide. We want. We crave harmony. Yeah. So okay. that's. I yeah. think there's a certain respect. So. I just I have a bunch of uh, material about a conversation that went terrible, and uh, I don't know if you know about my work at Evergreen, but Evergreen was a campus that promised uh, interdisciplinary dialogue and and promised progressive acceptance and tolerance and diversity, but it collapsed mm-hmm. because some bad actors came along and and took those ideas. Uh, and then took them to a, a certain uh, direction. Now, I don't know to what extent those ideas were actually functionally wrong or bad, but I do see that, that behavior. I do see that these ideas, uh, these words for justice and for reparation, et cetera, are being used for bad actors. So in a certain respect, we can despair that this orthodoxy, this fanaticism really does want to ruin uh, our society on a very interpersonal level and then on a governmental level. There's something mm-hmm. about it that wants to suppress, mm-hmm. repress, and create hierarchies of identity mm-hmm. and tribalism, mm-hmm. so on and so forth and so forth. What you're proposing is that there's only so much of that that people can stand because we long for a good conversation. We we uh, we actually don't like being put in the place. We don't like carrying around all this historical guilt. We can only do that so much before we, it just kind of spins itself out. It's Absolutely. The, the worst thing, uh, there is so much, if you carry that guilt, one day it's a explosion, you explode. And that's what I'm afraid actually might happen in the United <laughs> States. I hope not, that mm. there will be more Trumps coming in onto the poli- political mm. scene because mm-hmm. Trump is a symptom, right? And again, the more you push... Uh, extremist ideologies on one side and guilt one group of people, the more you will have horrible backlash. Mm, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm But we can avert it. that. We can, we can avert that as long as in our pushing back against that which is unbeautiful, we center the beauty and not just, like we said earlier, not just be anti-ugly. It's not enough to just be anti-ugly. You have to absolutely to no, it. no. Yeah. You have to 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 be something, some fresh ingredients to cook something, something mm-hmm. new. Yeah, mm-hmm. because by trying to be to fight an ugly, 
you in a way you recreate another form of ugliness. Yeah. 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 You pull people mm. to the center, to the table, right? From all sides. So that's what I'm kind of thinking about. And okay. On all levels. Yeah. But I think culturally, culturally, culture should help because we forgot about what made us from apes into humans in the first place. <laughs> I just heard somebody quote somebody else, and I can't remember either the person or the person that they're quoting, uh, but... Somebody said in a conversation I was over, uh, I was listening to last night that human beings are very actually stupid uh, entities. Like individually, we're pretty stupid. We're fairly uh, unsmart, unsophisticated, but we're very adept at at absorbing culture. So the culture really informs how smart we are uh, or how intelligent we are in concert. I agree and disagree. I think we are raw material. We are just potential, right? Yeah. What do we do with this potential? We need tools. We, and speaking of education, from early age, parents, we need to realize what tools we have from the past that will help us to reinvent mm. ourselves and move forward. And we are not stupid. We are a huge reservoir. Our mind is a huge reservoir, but what we fill it with. But um, it's a personal responsibility also, right? Yeah. It's kind of, in a way, how we refine ourselves, how we make a better version of our, ourselves with the potential we are given yeah. on, on individual level and yeah. on societal level. Like if we take more personal responsibility, instead of fixing the world, fix yourself in a way. Improve yourself. What can you do with yourself? How can you improve your conversation mm. with just one person in front of you? Not whole country, one person. Yeah. yeah. So it, 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 it's very, um, I think technology, <clears throat> technology uh, tempts us into being demagogues, tempts us to speaking to the crowd rather than to the individual. Talking heads, <clears throat> talking heads, no bodies. And uh, there's one very important thing. And uh, we're very touch-oriented creatures, right? we deprived of this, hmm. I would say, intimacy of human interaction. And I think coming back to that intimacy and coming back again, making kind of circle how we started to knowledge, how we know another person how we can carry intimate conversation, intimate, like, really, on on deep level, like human to human. <laughs> I think you breaking that technological shell, then you, you're doing something uniquely wonderful because you, I don't feel that barrier. <laughs> you are real when you're doing it. I, and you have many, many different kind of use, you're this and you're that. So kind of discovering how different we can be. We're not one-dimensional creatures, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But I, I do think even online we can cut through the shield. Yeah. And... Um, I think, yeah, humanity is able to snake through... Uh, the pixels. We are very sneaky. <laughs> I'm I'm very sneaky person, right? We're oh, sneaky, yeah? <laughs> and we're resilient. Look, we survived 
thousands of years of wars and genocide and plagues. And so I do believe in very resilient spirit of human beings. So do would you uh, be open to uh, playing a piece of music at the end of this conversation, uh, something that you're working on or your favorite? Would you be open to giving some culture into this broadcast? I or would. You, yeah. yeah. I don't you know how well the micro. Yeah. Do you, do you have something that you're uh, mastering or something from the something. old country? Or Yeah. So. Something I'll play something. I talked about a uh, place that I want to visit. I dream to visit. And I've been to many places. It's Argentina. Yeah. So I'll play uh, a piece um, from that region. It's called Alma Brasileira. It's Brazil and Argentina. Latin America It's the place. I've I never been there, but I dream to visit. Yeah, it's calling you for some reason. It's calling me. Yeah. 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 Okay, I'm next to my piano, actually. I wasn't... I see it right there. It's been in the shot the whole time. I know. Yeah. Could you hear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you, I you take can, it you out. Can, you can take them out. Thank you. 
Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.